turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed. And a good morning to you. Thank you for joining us as we get underway at seven minutes after the hour of nine o'clock, as per usual, right here on this Thursday, the 30th morning of the first month of the year of our Lord 2020. We are loaded up today, to say the very least. And it's not all, believe it or not, about the impeachment hearings, the trial, and everything that is going on there. I'm going to start with that. But coming up in less than 10, actually about 12, correction, about 12 minutes, Jim Carroll is the U.S. drug czar. We're going to talk to him. Why? Because numbers are coming out today, according to the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, the official 2018 drug overdose death numbers are in. And guess what? For the first time in decades, the number of overdose overdose death uh, deaths in the United States declined. That is an amazing, amazing thing, and we're going to talk about why that is and what U.S. policies to combat drug overdoses in the United States are working. So that's coming up at about 9.20. At 9.35, Mike Goldstein, Ohio Director of Proclaiming Justice to the Nation, is going to join us to talk about the, perce- or the um, proposed rather uh, peace plan in the Middle East, the two-state solution, Israel and Palestine having statehood, if you will, or recognized uh, state status, and Jerusalem remains the capital, undivided, of Israel. Obviously, Palestinians are balking at that, but what does it mean, and what are the chances this is approved? Mike Goldstein will join us to talk about that. Dr. Everett Piper at 1010, and Dean Reuter, author, is going to be joining us to talk about the hidden Nazi, and we're going to talk about the liberation of Auschwitz. As you know, this past Monday was the 75th anniversary of the day the Auschwitz concentration and death camp was liberated by the Russians, and we are going to pay attention to that through uh, Dean Reuter's book coming up at uh, at about 10.35 this morning. So we are loaded up, but we're going to start, of course, especially since time is of the essence for us here, um, we're going to start with the impeachment 
sham. Um, what an unbelievable uh, set of statements that were made yesterday by the Democrats as they continue to try uh, to uh, complete their coup d'etat to remove the President of the United States, begging for the Senate to undertake witnesses and new documents that they themselves could not produce when they put their ridiculous articles of impeachment together in the House of Representatives. They somehow think that the Senate, which is comprised only of jurors in the uh, proceedings, uh, in this type of trial, this type of political trial, they want the jurors to be investigators. That is not the job of the Senate to, uh, to uh, uh, investigate, interrogate witnesses and documents. Their job is to simply analyze and decide based on what the House managers sent them. That's it. Yesterday, Adam Schiff gave a great example of, a re- uh, of why he would never testify. He would never testify before uh, the Senate under oath. And the reason why is he would perjure himself. The reason why is because he perjured himself standing there arguing as a House, house manager yesterday. And he is not subject to perjury charges when he is arguing as a, a House manager. That's the problem and why he can continue to lie about his role in the entire fabrication of the charges against the president by way of the whistle. Let me be clear about several things about the whistleblower. First of all, I don't know who the whistleblower is. I haven't met them uh, or communicated with them in any way. The community, the committee staff did not write the complaint or coach the whistleblower what to put in the complaint. The committee staff did not see the complaint before it was submitted to the inspector general. The committee, including its staff, did not receive the complaint until the night before acting director of national intelligence. Uh, uh, we had an open hearing with the active director on September 26, more than three weeks after the legal deadline by which the committee should have received the complaint. So he continues to lie to the American people and to the United States Senate about his contact and his, his uh, staff's contact with the quote-unquote whistleblower. I take you back now to a conversation on Fox and Friends between uh, uh, the hosts and Sean Davis of The Federalist, who had in his possession tweets about uh, from Adam Schiff about these very same things weeks, two weeks before the whistleblower, quote-unquote, came forward. You can hear the lie for yourself. The Intel chair, Adam Schiff, tweeted out information that was very similar to the uh, whistleblower's complaint, but it was two weeks before the whistleblower's complaint was made public. Here's one of his tweets. Trump is withholding uh, vital military aid to Ukraine while his personal lawyer seeks help from the Ukraine government to investigate his political opponent. It It doesn't take a stable genius to see the magnitude of this conflict or how destructive it is to our national security. That was two weeks before the whistleblower's complaint came out. How could Adam Schiff know that if he was not in cahoots with the whistleblower? What do you make of that? I think it's really curious because we were told that the uh, congressional committees didn't get this whistleblower complaint until September. Um, But when you look at the complaint, which the president declassified and released last week, it was dated August 12th, and it was addressed to Adam Schiff himself. So it certainly seems as if Schiff knew a lot more about what was going on than he let on, which raises some fairly serious and troubling questions about whether he was part of this effort and perhaps even coordinating it long before anyone 
one else knew what was going on. That is exactly correct. To draw any other conclusion here is completely and wholly irresponsible. He knew weeks before the whistleblower came forward what the whistleblower was going to say. How could that be unless he and or his staff did indeed collaborate or coordinate with that whistleblower, maybe even helping him compose his complaint? All right, that's number one. Also yesterday, huge. Adam Schiff, who I think should probably be on trial as soon as this whole thing is over, because he is a low-down, dirty criminal snake. He stands there before the United States Senate, arguing that crimes were committed by Donald Trump that they could not put in the articles of impeachment. This was Judge Andrew Napolitano on with Fox and Friends, also talking about whether or not Schiff can get away with this. The impeachment articles, you can't bring up something that's on the impeachment article. You're accusing of something that you're not... Extortion so what happened is it's Adam Schiff said, it's extortion, it's bribery, and the president's legal team is saying, that's not fair, you, you know, never put that in the articles. Now you're saying, saying, saying happen, you know this, you're this a lawyer. This would not happen in front of a jury in a criminal case. It absolutely would be a mistrial if it were stated in front of a jury in a criminal case. This would be a mistrial. Adam Schiff's illegal act standing there trying to argue bribery and extortion, two words that were not in the articles of impeachment because they knew they could not prove them. Now he's trying to use them uh, in his arguments um, before the jurors. Adam Schiff is a criminal. Say it out loud and, and acknowledge it and understand this is not over. When the, pre- the president's trial is about to be over, there will be no witnesses. There will absolutely be an acquittal of the president probably by the end of business tomorrow. That part is over. But I promise you, Adam Schiff's conduct is going to be investigated. I can also promise you that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's um, extraordinarily dangerous activities with respect to Ukraine and selling access to the Obama White House through the vice president's office after this this unholy deal was struck and allowed between the Russian oligarch and Hunter Biden, the incompetent, uneducated, cokehead, kicked out of the Navy for cocaine, left his own wife to get with his dead brother's widow, this guy taking this no-show job for $83,000 a month to do nothing, to offer nothing to a company other than access to the White House. Watch and see if there is not a congressional investigation launched just about as soon as this ridiculous witch hunt is over. That is something that I promise you there you are going to see. You're definitely going to see that. You very likely will see. I cannot promise that one. I won't say that one with as much conviction. But there should be. It is likely to to be an investigation and probably a censure of Adam Schiff for his lies about when he talked to the whistleblower, when his staff talked to the whistleblower, and his circumventing of impeachment trial rules by trying to argue in front of the Senate things that they could not put in the articles of impeachment. All right, it's 17 minutes after now. We'll take a break now because we're going to come back and talk to the drug czar of the United States. The White House drug czar is going to tell us about the 2018 overdose numbers. It's a big surprise, and it's a big, big, it's a wonderful uh, piece of news. Let's put it that way. And it's the first time in decades anybody's been able to say this. So White House drug czar, uh, U.S. drug czar Jim Carroll joins us next.
All right, 920, as we continue on AM 1420, the answer. I told you we're loaded up today. We don't normally take yes in the first half hour of the program, but when you get a chance to talk to the U.S. drug czar, Jim Carroll, and you find out some great news that he has to share with us about overdose uh, deaths in the United States, you say, let's talk to Jim Carroll. He joins us now right here on AM 1420, the answer. Uh, Mr. Carroll, good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning, Bob. It's a great honor to be on your show. Well, it's an thank you, and it's an honor to have you, especially when I was informed of the uh, White House Office of uh, National Drug Control Policy uh, that the 2018 drug overdose deaths uh, death numbers uh, are about to be released today, and you have those numbers. What can you tell us? What in about 40 minutes, I'm going to go to the podium here at the White House and talk about for the first time in almost three decades, 29 years. The number of Americans dying has gone down. And I want to be able to say to the folks in Ohio, I've been there so many times, you all have exceeded that national average actually by quite a bit. I can't release Ohio-specific numbers yet, but I'm telling you right now, Ohio, you all have come together as a state under the governor, under the senator. I've worked so closely with Governor DeWine, Senator Portman, and folks like you who are out there telling people to get help that they need. And as a result, Ohio has better numbers than the national average. And, of course, as I said, the national average is better for the first time in 30 years. Now, what I don't understand, uh, Jim Carroll, and I'm sitting here scratching my head, I want to clap and I want to applaud this because it is great news, but how? We've been told and we're all following the, the epidemic, this, this opioid crisis that this country is in, that between fentanyl deaths and um, uh, opioids, uh, prescription drugs, as well as some of the other traditional uh, street drugs and heroin and so you know, we're in the middle of a terrible, terrible crisis in this country, and yet, somehow, some way, cutting down perhaps on the amount of those things coming into the country with solid, strong border control policies uh, and other things, somehow these, uh, these numbers went down. I'm, I'm amazed by that. It's really it's a combination of doing everything. We have more people getting treatment than ever before. We launched a new website here from the White House last year. It's findtreatment.gov, findtreatment.gov. You can put your zip code in. It's completely anonymous. All sorts of drop-down menus if you have insurance, if you don't have insurance, and you can find a treatment center in your area. We have, we're spending more money on prevention than ever before. The president is committed to getting the message out to kids. And then, as you said it, we are securing our country from these drugs that are coming here and that are killing us. Almost all the drugs in the U.S. that are killing our neighbors and our friends and our family are coming from outside the United States. The president is committed to it. I'm committed to it. And you understand the dangers as well. Do we have any um, breakdowns, uh, Jim Carroll, about um, which states? I know you said that Ohio in particular is better than the national average in terms of, of uh, the overdose death numbers. Um, but I'm curious about cities and or regions that have uh, begun needle sharing programs. Their answer to the opioid and the and the overdose crisis is, "Hey, we want to share. We uh, we we, we want to uh, uh, we want to uh, provide clean needles to people so that they don't share them and and spread other diseases. Uh, we're going to let them feed their addictions. We're going to give them the opportunity to shoot up in safe places. Uh, do we do we have any idea about how much worse if they are? That's my assumption that they are in those places. Yeah, we don't have those numbers yet. As I said, we're still pouring through the data Mm -hmm. from the Center for Disease Control, you know, to do um, that type of breakdown to see what's happening. 
It is against the law, absolutely. It's against federal law to have a safe injection site. Um, that is not permissible. The, all of the studies that we have seen show that they're not an effective way to get people into treatment. Um, and we just need to rely on the facts. I understand that, you know, we're trying to do everything we can, but the facts show that these places, you know, and I don't even like the term safe injection site, Bob. I mean, how can you think about safely injecting fentanyl or some other, other you know, drug into your system? But right now the evidence shows um, they're just not effective. We're concentrating on stopping the flow into the country, stop, you know, helping people get treatment. That's what we're going to do. Well, Philadelphia is one of them. I just uh, did a quick check. Philadelphia is one of the cities that has uh, decided to allow, as you correctly say, it's a it's a really poorly worded uh, uh, you know uh, 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 thing here to say that these are safe injection sites. But but it'll be interesting to see what the numbers look like in terms of overdose deaths in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. Uh, bigger picture. What are the plans to continue? I mean, this is such a phenomenal yeah. piece of news. I wouldn't have guessed this uh, that we actually had a decrease in overdose deaths because of the crisis we're in. But because we are, uh, I have to ask. You know what can be done to to build on that momentum what else is 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 uh, the president planning what else is your office planning uh to continue this yeah so first off what's happening in philadelphia the u.s department of justice um is prosecuting um a case there and, and challenging that because we do believe it's completely against federal law in terms of the, um, what we're doing we are absolutely committed to um, first making sure that we are reducing the number of opioid prescriptions that are being written by physicians Mm-hmm. We've seen a dramatic decrease. Um, we're almost about 35% reduction in high-dose opioid prescriptions since the president um, came into office. We're continuing to work with medical schools and making sure that as new doctors are graduating, that they have the education to understand this. And then we're also making sure that there's more medication-assisted treatment to those who are suffering, getting more doctors trained up on that and making sure that's available. And so we're doing all those efforts right now to make sure that we're not creating the next generation of people. And then for those people that are suffering, it's important to let them know that we care about them. We're not passing a moral judgment on them. We don't want to stigmatize them. We want to take them by the hand and lead them into treatment. The president is passionate about this. He lost his brother, Fred, through an addiction. So he understands what's happening out there. We have a lot of work left to do. It's good news to show that we're doing the right things, but there's too many children, there's too many family members that are dying from this, and we are just going to be relentless in going after this issue. Such an important point you make. We're talking with Jim Carroll, the U.S. Drug Czar, the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, about to announce today, as you heard, Jim, he's going to be at the podium in the White House announcing this in about uh, 40 minutes at the top of the hour. Uh, the uh, overdose deaths in the United States in 2018 went down for the first time in decades. Jim, I just want to follow up on what you said about, um, you know, the argument is going to be that what's going on in Philadelphia, for example, is against federal law. Uh, how do we decide what to follow? Because, for example... Um, marijuana is still uh, uh, against federal law, you, possession of and sale of, of marijuana, but yet it is legal for recreational use in a handful of states, and that seems to be growing. So does state law supersede federal law or vice versa when it comes to opioids and other drugs? You know, what we need to do is to make sure that people understand that it is still against federal law. No one is being prosecuted you know, for having a you know, one joint in their back pocket you know, mm-hmm. by the U.S. attorney in their region. What we're really trying to do is to make sure that we're going after traffickers of illicit substances, such as marijuana, to make sure that people understand the dangers of it. Scientifically, we know already 
that use of marijuana by people under the age of 25 has an impact, a physical impact on their brain that can be irreversible. What we know is the impact on pregnant women um, in terms of the chronic use of marijuana during their pregnancy impacts the baby in the womb. We have to get the message out there. We're expanding federal research to make sure that everyone understands you know, what chronic use of marijuana actually does to a person. And again, just like we talked about with other things, let the facts take us where they are. Let's take politics and things like that out of it, and let's show what other um, impact there is by the use of marijuana. We're committed to making sure this happens faster and faster so that people understand and um, know exactly what's going on when they do this. We've seen the dangers of vaping, um, and we need to make sure that people understand the dangers um, that are associated with chronic marijuana use, at least in certain populations. I'm going to give you one last uh, moment here, even though we're a little late, Jim, because I just, I'm going to make a political statement here. Um, this is a win for the President of the United States. I mean, the fact that this has not happened in terms of overdose drug, uh, drug death de- decreases uh, like this in decades, that means the entirety of the Obama administration, the entirety of the Bush administration, the entirety of the Clinton, and going back decades now, this is an incredible thing, especially when uh, the, the use of fentanyl and the use of other opioids is is on the rise and yet we are finding a way to treat and to try to stop this so this is this is something the president can and should be very proud of yes the president is proud but the president believes like you do like i do and like all these other people that we just need to continue to go at this hard what is working under this president is showing an effect we know it we just have to keep at it the president made a commitment during the campaign the president made a commitment on his first day in office and we are going forward with that plan. The bottom line is my commitment to the American people is that the same of the president. We are going to save lives. A lot of work left to do, but we're up for the fight, and it's going to help. And people like you, Bob, are spreading the message, spreading the gospel about prevention and treatment and understanding securing our country. We're going to do it. We are battling addiction. We are battling drug overdose deaths. And once again, President Trump has us winning. And I am not tired of it at all. Jim Carroll, U.S. Drug Czar, thank you so much for this great news. We appreciate you sharing it with us. Thanks for letting me be on. Thank you so much. God bless. That's Jim Carroll from the White House Office of National Drug Control, and uh, he will announce at the top of the hour, 10 o'clock, what he just told us, a little uh, uh, firsthand news here, that drug overdose deaths in 2018, those numbers are finally in, they have been calculated, and we have a decrease for the first time in decades. That is indeed winning. Back after the news. Nine thirty-seven. I would continue on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. Thanks again to the U.S. Drug Czar for coming on to give us that great news about the about the uh, decrease in overdose deaths in the United States, first time in decades. President Trump continues to win. The president also believes that there is an opportunity for a win when it comes to Middle East peace, particularly in the decades-long battle uh, over statehood or a two-state solution, if you will, for Israel and Palestine. I want this deal. To be a great deal for the Palestinians. It has to be. Today's agreement is a historic opportunity for the Palestinians to finally achieve an independent state of their very own. After 70 years of little progress, this could be the last opportunity they will ever have. And last for a lot of reasons. We'll never have a team like we have right now. 
The president made that announcement, obviously, with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who supports the idea of a two-state solution, essentially allowing Israel to keep Jerusalem as the undivided capital of Israel and the Palestinians getting portions, but not large portions of territory to their east to claim as their own, connected in a strange serpentine way by underground tunnels, which we're going to discuss now with our guest Michael Goldstein. Michael Goldstein is the Ohio director of PJTN, which is uh, Proclaiming Justice to the Nations. Uh, Mr. Goldstein, good to talk to you again, my friend. How are you, sir? I'm fine, Bob. It's good to talk to you. Well, this uh, grabbed a lot of people or took a lot of people by surprise, I think. I did not expect this. I did not know uh, how close we were to coming up with a proposal like this. Um, Give me your reaction to uh, your initial reaction, rather, to the announcement made by the president and the prime minister. Then we'll talk about the reception that it is getting from the Palestinian authorities. Okay. Well, first of all, I want everybody to remember that PJTN, Proclaiming Justice to the Nations, is a Christian organization dedicated um, by our founder and president, Dr. Lori Cardozo-Moore, to educating Christians on their biblical duty to support Israel and the Jewish people in these times of growing anti-Semitism. And that is uh, just what we're going to talk about here today. Um, this this um, deal, in the first place, is very good for what it shows about United States policy. It shows that we're becoming. Uh, it shows our independence of, of diplomatic action rather than subordinating United States interests to the whims of the UN, Europe, and the Third World. It shows that the U.S. is not trapped in the fallacy of moral equivalence and a distorting morality, um, which misrepresents reality, which used to uh, undermine U.S. interests. We're not going to let it do that this time. Um, and it reveals that the U.S. has realized that the Palestinian issue is not the core cause of the Middle East turbulence. Um, and uh, of all prior U.S. Uh, peace plans, now this is where it begins to get a little rocky. Mm-hmm. All U.S. peace plans in the past um, just crashed and burned because of the realities in the Middle East. Um, which is? The, what is that reality? Which it, the reality is that uh, the Middle East is ruthlessly uncontrollable and unpredictable. In pursuing this plan, we need to be aware that Western values, including democracy, negotiations, adherence to agreements, and peaceful coexistence, do not apply to the Muslim Arab Middle East, which is characterized by a 14-century-old intra-Muslim features. And, and these fig- figure um, include uh, no... Uh, no peaceful protocols between Muslim nations. Uh, everything is unpredictable. It's, it's unstable. There's religious and ethnic fragmentation, violent intolerance, terrorism and subversion, Islam-driven goals and values, including um, an acceptance of an, in any infidel in, uh, entity in the abode of, of Islam, law of uh, holy space. Um, and Middle East regimes are very tenuous regarding policies and accords. Accords with the infidel are non-binding ceasefires called Hudna until the opportunity arises to overcome the infidel. Believers are advised to lie to Kia in order to mislead and overcome the infidel. In the Middle East, words don't really have any value. Realistic policies and accords should be based on the bad worst-case scenario, not on a Western-driven good 
uh, best case scenario. Um, most of the Middle East is not driven by a desire to improve their standard of living, which is inherent in this New Deal, but by religious ideological visions. Concessions, appeasement, and gestures to rogue elements has, um, have added fuel to the fire of aggression and terrorism. So whenever we appease and, uh, and, and uh, promise them good things, they consider that weakness. And um, ensuring national security Mike. in the Middle East requires, less one, extra precaution and tangible security, which would withstand future violations of agreements and volcanic eruptions. In other words, we can't, in implementing this, we have to realize that at any time it could be and probably will be violated. Okay. Okay. Uh, um, so at the basis of this is the question, do the Palestinians want to have a state? Do they want a state? And history shows us that they don't. Um, in the past, well, since 1937, they've been offered a state eight different times. The British Peel Commission in 1937, the 1947-48 UN Resolution 181, and again in 2000, 2001, 2008, and 2014, and they turned down a state every time. Well, Mike, is, isn't it, isn't it, yeah, Mike, let me, let me jump in. Let me, I gotta get in here because there's a lot of stuff to cover here. Um, yes. they, 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 they say they want a state, but as you said, they've turned it down, and that's because they don't want the state as it's being drawn up for them. They want Israel. They want Israel to be their state. They don't think Israel deserves to exist. They think Jerusalem should be theirs, et cetera. Is there anything in this proposal that would make them likely to accept it? given the fact that two things, number one, Jerusalem stays the undivided capital of Israel, and number two, the settlements that they have long wanted you know, Israel to, to you know, uh, withdraw from are actually uh, uh, confirmed as part of Israel and annexed by Israel, again, creating kind of a Byzantine type of, uh, of, of drawing. It's almost like a con- congressional map that's drawn uh, in, in such strange <laughs> ways. Um, you know, and again, where Palestine, in order, you know, in a, a, a Palestinian state in such a in such a, a plan here, they would have to connect to you know their own parts of state by way of tunnels, um, which is just a little bit odd. So, is there is given the fact that Jerusalem and the settlements would would belong to Israel, and Israel would annex those settlements and those parts of the West Bank as their own? Is there any real chance that the Palestinians would would go for something like this? Well, uh, one little caveat that they're promised by this plan, a capital in a part of East Jerusalem, which I believe is beyond the Green Line. It's, it's part of East Jerusalem, but it's not really part of Jerusalem, if you understand what I mean. It's just symbolic, really. They should keep their capital in Ramallah. But um, uh, I'm sure they're going to be saying no, and in fact they've been saying no for months before they even saw it because they realized that it wasn't going to help them in their ultimate goal, which is, as you say, destruction of the entire state of Israel and Arab occupation of the entire country, um, regardless of what might happen to the six or seven million Jews and a couple million Christians in the country. Um, It's a law. It was once occupied by Muslims. It was never a state, a Muslim state, but it was occupied by Muslims for 100 years or so. And then they were kicked out. And, but once it's occupied by Muslims, it's Muslim territory, and they will fight to the death for it. So I think the best-case scenario is they'll scream and holler and say, no, no, no. And maybe they will agree to have some secret negotiations with the Israelis to try to get something done. But 
uh, every Mike. every Muslim head of state uh, who has ever worked in cooperation with the Jews has been assassinated. So it's a very difficult thing for them to try to do. I have no doubt of that. Mike, let, let me ask you this. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu was on with um, uh, Fox and Friends and Brian Kilmeade, I think it was yesterday or it might have been Tuesday. I guess it was yesterday, yeah, because this was all announced on Tuesday. Um, Brian asked the Prime Minister... Um, what does Israel give up here? What is their sacrifice? What is their, you know, what is their ante into this so that there is a pot in the middle that is acceptable for everybody? And I'll admit to you, um, he struggled. He struggled in coming up with something, and he essentially said that we're acknowledging and recognizing that that Palestine has a state. This is something they've always wanted, and we've worked very hard to get here. Blah blah blah. But he couldn't really say that Israel is giving anything up. In any negotiation, and President Trump, of course, is a master negotiator, and he's talked about this, which is why this is ongoing with China and uh, and, and so on and so forth in terms of trade. Uh, both sides generally have to give something up for a negotiation to be successful. What should, if anything, in your opinion, tell me truly how you feel, what should Israel be willing to give up to make Palestine a little bit more agreeable to this? Well, in the first place... The Palestinians, I shouldn't say, not Palestine, because there isn't an actual Palestine right now, but uh, the Palestinians. Sorry, go ahead. That's why I always put Palestinians in quotation marks. Right. You can't see them on the radio, but please believe me, they're there when I talk about <laughs> I, I, I hear you, my friend. Our, our I, I know. People. Okay. Well, the sovereignty of the Temple Mount will stay in the hands of Jordan, um, and I think that is a huge concession from Israel, which conquered the Temple Mount in 1967 and immediately turned the keys over, you know, and, and gave control of it back to the Muslims. Um, I think it was a mistake then. I think it's it's something that uh, they're, they're, they're ceding that right um, in this deal, and it'll be a, a done thing. And that's a big thing to give up when it's the, really the holiest site in Judaism. And, uh, and the Israelis, if they try to pray up there, they get taken to jail. You know, it's, it's a, now, in terms of territory... Um, I believe that uh, 80% of the territory will remain in the new Palestine state, including um, parts of Judea, you know, a lot of Judea and Samaria, the, the uh, Israeli settlements there. I, I can't even call them settlements. They're towns, they're neighborhoods, they're actual cities, some of them. But um, And there are, there are people who live in those. When it becomes a Palestinian state, they want to stay there. <laughs> which is going to be rough because in beginning in 1929, the Jews who were living in villages uh, in Arab neighborhoods were all slaughtered. Um, and uh, so they've come back to some of those same neighborhoods, and they're established there. Mm -hmm. And they want to stay, and they would stay in a, in a Palestinian state, which is dedicated to be free of Jews. So that's, that's um, I think, different. That, that, no, that's, that's you, a good you, answer. You have to assume... No, that's a good answer. Um, the, the prime minister didn't even come up with that yesterday. Uh, really talking about the uh, Temple Mount and so on. I mean, because he, you know, because it's 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 an interesting question. Again, I mean, we all know that this 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 battle has has gone on for so very long. It's not going to end with one side just saying, "Okay, uh, we'll take exactly what you offered." They're going to demand concessions. Uh, I wanted to know what there was in your mind that 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 the Israelis had conceded to try to make this work. Uh, that is one great example of it. I don't know how much of a concession this is, but regarding the right of return of Palestinian refugees, under this agreement, they will have the right to return not to Israel, but to the new Palestinian state. 
they're living in what are called refugee camps now, and it's not mm-hmm. a given that, that, I mean, no one has taken them in. Jordan hasn't taken them in. Uh, Lebanon has taken them in. Egypt, no one. Saudi Arabia certainly hasn't taken them in, nor Iraq. So this would require the new Palestinian states to take in their own people. And that, uh, I guess that's somewhat of a concession. So, something right. has to be done with those people, and it's very important. That's, um, that's a great point, too. Michael, I'm out of time now, but we're going to talk more about this because uh, we're going to follow this as, uh, as this uh, goes on. Uh, but I want to remind everybody about PJTN, Proclaiming Justice to the Nations. I will join you in that proclamation. As you say, it's a, it's a Christian organization, but it unites Christians and Jews and all people of good conscience to okay, support Israel. I also Israel. just want to say briefly yeah. that uh, this is collaborative effort of uh, Beverly Goldstein worked with me on doing the research on this. Of course she did. How could how could you do anything without her her loving and guiding hand? Uh, <laughs> I, I think you I, two I are could, a wonderful dinner without her. <laughs> you, you two are a wonderful partnership in, in addition to being a, a wonderful uh, husband and wife. Uh, Michael, thank you so much. Uh, give my best to Beverly, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Michael Goldstein, Proclaiming Justice to the Nations. Again, he's the Ohio Director. It's a very important organization we've talked about and featured before, and we will continue to do so. It's a wonderful, wonderful organization to support Israel, partnerships between Christians and Jews uh, to do exactly that. 951, back after this. All right, we continue now. Short segment here before the top of the hour. Thanks again to my guests thus far. It's I told you we were packed today, and we are. Jim Carroll, the U.S. Drug Czar, joined us. Mike Goldstein from PJTN joined us. Dr. Everett Piper is going to be with us after the top of the hour. So this is me. Precious little time to share with you, of course. Audio you probably have heard since yesterday. Um, the left, the Democrats, have continued to scream and cry that this is a cover-up if we don't get witnesses, particularly John Bolton. John Bolton, they say. We'll bring truth. John Bolton will tell the truth about what Donald Trump really wanted to do when it came to investigating Burisma and investigating Ukraine. It was to help his personal campaign for president. He was willing to withhold aid, John Bolton will say, because somebody at the New York Times heard from somebody, heard from somebody else, heard from somebody else, who may have seen a transcript of a book that isn't even written yet, that that's what he thinks. And we need to hear him say that, because John Bolton will bring the truth. Well, that isn't exactly what John Bolton said before. How do we know what truth John Bolton will bring when this newly resurfaced audio uh, has been brought back to the forefront? Well, I I will be meeting President Zelensky. Uh, He and President Trump have already spoken twice. Uh, The president called to congratulate President Zelensky on his election and then on his success in the parliamentary election, they were very warm and cordial calls. Uh, we're hoping that uh, they'll be able to meet in Warsaw and have a few minutes together. Uh- warm and cordial calls. The president called to congratulate him on his election. There were warm and cordial calls that had nothing to do with any threats or quid pro quos or anything else. Well, that's what John Bolton said then. And now his manuscript, maybe, maybe, says something else. How can they be in such a, a, a hurry to hear from a guy that they don't know what they can believe? Think about that just for a minute. How do they know which John Bolton will show up if he does testify? 
and to really illustrate the point that they don't know if they can trust what John Bolton is going to say, let's ask, I don't know, pencil neck Schiff himself. Administration. Well, I think Bolton is not only a bad choice, uh, it's honestly difficult to consider a worse choice. This is someone who's likely to exaggerate uh, the dangerous impulses of the president towards belligerence, uh, his uh, proclivity to act without thinking, uh, and uh, his, uh, his love of conspiracy theories, theory, uh, theories. Adam Schiff says John Bolton is a conspiracy theorist who will exaggerate things. In other words, he has no credibility. This is what Adam Schiff told Rachel Maddow less than two years ago. John Bolton can't be trusted. John Bolton may, may as well be uh, Donald Trump himself because he's going to be a mouthpiece. He can't be trusted. He has no credibility. That was only the first time that he doubted John Bolton's credibility. That was on MSNBC on Maddow. He did it on CNN, too. The president, uh, and that is nuclear terrorism. Uh, Mr. Bolton has been AWOL. He's more focused on the next job than doing well at the last job. And particularly given the history uh, where we've had the politicization of intelligence over WMD, why we would pick someone uh, who the very same uh, issue has been raised repeatedly, and that is John Bolton's politicization of the intelligence he got on Cuba and on other issues. Me, Why would we would want someone with that lack of credibility? I can't understand. John Bolton has no credibility, Adam Schiff says. The pencil neck himself said he has no credibility. And yet, he and the rest of his demon rats in the United States Senate trial over the impeachment of President Donald J. Trump they are screaming that Bolton must be the witness that testifies because he will bring truth to what Donald Trump was planning in Ukraine. The man who has no credibility, the man who cannot be trusted to not exaggerate or spin conspiracy theories, suddenly is going to be the harbinger of truth. That's why this ridiculous sham of an impeachment will be over by the close of business tomorrow.